Blog Talk Radio. Election 2012 has begun, but it's barely noticeable thanks to the battle for the budget. The Tea Party is salivating for another government shutdown, which John Boehner is trying to spin as a win for Republicans. Of course, that's not what happened the last time the GOP forced the issue, and the truth is, should it happen again, we all lose. More ominous is the possibility that Congress will fail to raise the debt ceiling, a prospect Timothy Geithner characterizes as disastrous. And if you think this year's battle is bad, wait for 2012 and Paul Ryan's plan that would do away with Medicare and Medicaid once and for all. Good day, and welcome to Momocrats Mama Chat, brought to you by BubbleGenius.com. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills, also known as SoCal Mom, and I'm here today with Cinematic of K-12 News Network, J-List Judy from Care2.com and State of Discontent, and we're delighted this week to have Melissa Schober because she knows how to take a proposal like the Ryan Bill and drill it down so I can understand exactly what it means to people like me. Ladies, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, everyone. So, um, 2012. Off to to a big start already. Do you guys remember when the start of the election cycle gave us hope? Uh, Yes, I do remember that. I think it was, hmm, let's see, about four years ago? Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been a long four years, hasn't it, folks? A lot of water under the bridge since then. And um, my theory is that, uh, you know, these election cycles are just getting longer so that it's, you know, you're always on, you're always campaigning, you're always fundraising. And um, I'm afraid to say I think this has become a a part of our economy. (laughs) I agree. I agree, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, one thing that disturbs me about that, well, there are two main things that disturb me about that. One is that how much is being taken away from politicians' time to actually legislate and govern when they are spending so much time, effort, energy, and money on these campaigns. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, um, I I understand, I definitely understand why President Obama has officially started his uh, re-election campaign because he does, in the wake of the Citizens United decision that allows corporations to contribute unlimited amounts of money toward political campaigns, essentially, um, I understand why people who don't expect to get a lot of big donations from corporations, but instead, um, as in Obama's case, plan on raising a lot of individual donations, which is what Obama did in the first place to get elected. Um, I understand why why someone in that position would want to start early, but it it bothers me, um, you know, from a taxpayer's perspective and a citizen's perspective. I'm like, hey, wait a minute, isn't your job supposed to be governing the nation rather than campaigning. And then also, like you said, it's 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 becoming a a part of our economy. Like is this an economic stimulus package? I kind of hope so, but but it's sort of appalling to me to think about and you know, in an age when we have all of these economic problems happening and there are so many people without work and there are so many people struggling to get by just on a daily basis to pay their rent and buy food, that this could be a presidential election campaign where $3 billion might be spent. I mean, that just 
that's overwhelming to me. Yeah, and I think as you pointed out with Citizens United and certainly with a lot of U.S. Chamber of Commerce money and Koch Brothers money and just a lot of corporate money awash in general, that it's very slanted. And I think that we can't have an economic recovery predicated on the enrichment of the conservative pundit class and the conservative conservative political consulting student class. You know, that doesn't count uh, in my mind as like regular jobs for regular people. This is just sort of the, the rich for the enriching, you know, their minions who help deliver the message and help get, you know, their people elected. I don't see this as like a true, you know, democratic, broad-based, regular guy, regular, you know, gal kind of uh, stimulus, you know? Yeah. Well, anyway. It's, it's, uh, well, on the good side, you know, the Democrats just named a female as the head of the party. And... And we all love Debbie Wasser and Schultz. Yeah, I was going to say, they didn't name just any woman head of the DNC, did they? They named Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is, in my opinion, a superwoman. I mean, uh, she's a representative from Florida, and, you know, she she overcame an incredible battle with breast cancer while in office and continued to serve the people, and she's a mother of three. And, I, I you know, I see... Debbie Wasserman Schultz speaking out um, on behalf of progressive causes on a regular basis, and she is just so incredibly strong-willed, and and she's fiery, you know, in a very good way. And I'm really pleased because I feel like Tim Kaine was much too laid back um, in his interactions with the media, and I I feel like he, he didn't show any sort of real passion a lot of the time when I would see him speak about, you know, why people should be voting for Democrats. And I I think Debbie Wasserman Schultz is definitely going to bring passion. Yeah. She's going to be great on the talking head shows. I'm sorry. I'm so excited to see her as as chair of the DNC. I think just seeing a woman who brings her own children to hearings outside um, and they sit with her up on the diet sometimes, um, it is a huge difference in the face of the Democratic Party to see a woman who successfully balances her career, her mothering, her activism with all these causes, and managed to fight off breast cancer and had her ovaries removed due to um, the testing that was done for the BRCA gene um, is is just remarkable. And, And I think even more remarkable is, except for a few people in her office, no one even knew that she had had the surgery. I saw her walking around the hill and no one knew. She just picked herself up and kept on going. Not that I'm suggesting we can all be so superwoman-like. I love, yes, but I, I agree, Melissa, and like the details of her personal biography are incredible. I give her incredible, you know, huge props for that. And I, and I think it's a worthwhile example to all of us um, who are progressive women, uh, liberal women, women who care about politics, and we, you know, experience occasional setbacks. And, and my favorite saying, especially after 2010, where women didn't really turn out in the numbers that we were kind of hoping for, my favorite saying is, uh, you know, there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> and I think Debbie Wasserman Schultz sort of epitomizes, you know, there is no crying in baseball. Get back out on the field, you know, uh, you know, do it, right? And 
And if you, you're not going to win the first time necessarily, or even the second, or third, or fifth, but you, you know, that's the kind of tenacity it's going to take. And, and I just wanted to toss in also that Donna Brazil is number two at the DNC, so I think that's also very um, significant and, and worth remarking on. And, and you know, I'm really hoping to see good things as a result out of that because um, hopefully someone you know, in parsing all the numbers of, of who turned out to vote in 2010, noticed that, you know, hey, we've had some substantial fall off here in terms of, um, you know, women coming out and supporting and, and women having traditionally been, um, you know, a, a strong base in the Democratic base. You know, we can't uh, we can't afford to lose that. And, you know, we all know, like Stupak Pitts, there were a lot of, you know, really gruesome things that, you uh, we were forced to confront and 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 swallow in some cases uh you know just in the passage of the health care bill and that have uh, since come back you know in HR3 to um to really haunt us but uh that's all the more reason why we can't you know we can't countenance this right we have to we have to beat it back because you know that's those these are our bodies and our choices about our bodies at stake so i'm really hoping that that is very much at the forefront of the 2012 campaign, especially if we have, you know, Michelle, president, possible presidential candidate Michelle Bachman is, is someone <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yes. that's, that's a really terrifying prospect. I mean, it will be great for the cable comedy shows. Like, I'm sure The Daily Show is just going to throw a party if Michelle Bachman actually gets the nomination, but I am oh, personally yeah. a little terrified that this woman who, who uh, you know, gave a PowerPoint presentation as the Tea Party response to the, <laughs> like, a really poorly planned PowerPoint presentation. And, and she and she apparently is not aware of the fact that the Founding Fathers did not end slavery and she doesn't know which conquered the, you know, a revolutionary battle took place in. And I, I don't know. I just, I Michelle Bachman freaks me out. And I yeah. I, I don't like to say that about people, but... um. The idea of someone, you know, she reminds me of um, this boss I had who had all her interns write her stuff, you know. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and well, on top of that, you know, PolitiFact, just, you know, there was a ranking last week somewhere of all the politicians and and um, how, how factual they were. And she got the PolitiFact pants on fire rating because like nine out of ten of statements were complete lies. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Although it's hard to tell with Michelle Bachman, I feel like it's hard to tell anyway whether she is making stuff up to be malicious or making stuff up because she genuinely knows very little about uh, history and government. And that's that's sort of and I I mean what what really irks me about that is that I feel like when you have people. When you have women specifically, like Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman, women who may have accomplished a lot in their lives but definitely are not, shall we say, intellectually uh, inclined. Like these are not people who enjoy reading history books on Saturday afternoons, you know. <laughs> and And I feel like that's presenting a vision of female leadership that is sort of, you know, based on, I don't know, this sort of stereotypical uh, view of, of how a woman should act as a leader. And I, I just, oh, it gets under my skin. And I feel like, 
You know, there are a lot of really well-qualified, really brilliant women out there, and some of them are even conservatives, you know. And I'm sure that... uh, I'm sure that the Republican Party could find better women candidates to put forward. And so I'm wondering, you know, why is this that they are continually promoting these women who, you know, again, I mean, one thing, one good thing I have to say about Michelle Bachman is that she's she's raised something like 27 foster children, which I think is a pretty awesome thing to do. And that's an accomplishment that I don't want to take away from her. And I also I also think that, you know, she, she does have a law degree, so there must be something going on in there. <laughs> you know, she, you don't get a law degree, unless you're Orly Tates or something, getting your law degree out of a cereal box. You don't wind up with a law degree if you if you don't know how to study and work hard in school. But I just think that, uh, I don't know, this act she puts on, this, oh, I I don't really know what I'm talking about, act that she puts on is, is really unnerving to me. I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, well, yeah, I, I think that um, Republican male voters, and, and most of them are males, like their female candidates to look like their Fox News commentators. Yeah. Oh, and I don't know how many of you have seen the uh, survey, the classic online survey, is it a Fox News anchor or an adult film star, but um, there is a certain what? sort of, there's actually a survey that went around for a while where they had, fo- they had photos of, uh, you know, Fox News anchors because, because of the fact that the Fox News, um, you know, pushes their anchors to put on a lot of makeup and dress really provocatively, which I think is, you know, part of their business plan, but um, yeah. So anyway, um, before we move on from Michelle Bachman, did anybody catch Joanne Bamberger's pundit mom's uh, blog post about her this week, where she talks about the fact that uh, people don't know that Bachman started out as a Democrat. Her parents were Democrats, and the thing that turned her off of the Democratic Party was that she read Gore Vidal's novel Burr and she was insulted by the way he treated the founding fathers. That just seems like if, I mean, that just seems like an incredible piece of fiction. (laughs) I mean, you know, I think I had um, Pundit Mom's response, which is like, wow, what a really dumb reason for a conversion narrative, but I guess it's sort of plausible, and it, you know, backwards looking in the rearview mirror, it certainly fits, you know, a comfortable narrative now, so who knows if it's really true, but um, I, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm not looking forward to um, the rights kind of imitation of what they think feminism is, and their activation (laughs) of right-wing female identity politics, and I think that what is risky for Democratic women, I think most, you know, liberal women are, uh, you know, uh, uh, quite a bit smarter than that to really, you know, to really say, well, I'm voting for anything and every and everything that has an XX chromosome. And I think, you know, we've seen enough examples of how the so-called GOP Year of the Women has now turned into the the GOP War on Women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I would just like to keep sort of reminding sort of that squishy middle, which tends to be a little more um, 
less informed, maybe sometimes it's busy, other times it's just sort of, you know, without any sort of firm political moorings. I'd just like to remind those women that, you know, just because Phyllis Schlafly has the same chromosomal structure as you, she might not have your best interests at heart. And I think that's kind of what we have in a lot of these GOP female candidates. Before we move on from election talk, what, what, why do you guys think so many women simply did not vote in 2010? And how do we prevent a repeat of that in 2012? I think, you know, I actually, um, when I, I worked on the Obama campaign in 2008 as a volunteer, and I feel like, so I, I talked one-on-one in 2008 with a lot of voters that we were trying to reach. I was a um, a community organizer, you know. Yay! And, uh, <laughs> and I was doing a lot of voter registration and voter outreach, and I talked to a lot of women in my community, which is um, a working class, neighborhood in the Midwest, suburban neighborhood, uh, that used to be dominated by, back when Boeing was still McDonnell Douglas in Missouri, by a huge, you know, airplane manufacturing and a, and a huge Ford manufacturing job base. And now, you know, a, a lot of my neighbors um, don't have jobs or are working in sort of really low-paying service jobs that are... Uh, you know, a lot harder to get by on than the old factory jobs that used to support the community. And there are a lot of um, single working mothers in my neighborhood. And I think women who are mothers, women who are busy taking care of families, need a really good motivation to take off work or get child care for their kids or haul their kids over to the library or the, you know, wherever their polling place is, um, to vote. And I, I think that's just a I think that's just a fact that, you know, I mean I'm not saying obviously there are a lot of men out there who have difficulty finding time to vote too, but I think that I think that women just aren't feeling spoken to and they aren't feeling they aren't feeling like the people in office value issues that are important to women. And I think people are more likely to vote when they are inspired by by a positive thing than when they are um, discouraged by negative things. So even though there's been all this legislation in state legislatures and also in the federal Congress that directly affects women in a very negative way, you know, the Republicans have proposed all sorts of cuts to health care and programs that support families, and they've been, you know, making really drastic, drastic curtailments on women's reproductive rights to the point that, you know, there was talk in Congress not long ago about redefining rape and saying that, you know, well, and just recently someone was proposing that the IRS should interrogate women and ask them if they had been sexually assaulted or not, on you know on their tax return um to in order to prove that women had not inappropriately used taxpayer funds to pay back a health care plan for an abortion so i mean i just feel like this is egregious stepping on women's rights but i think a lot of women are just so tired of that drumbeat of women's concerns and women's rights being thrown under the bus 
that they feel discouraged. They feel like, you know, what's it going to do if I go vote for someone? And I think that was what was happening in 2010, and I really hope it doesn't happen again in 2012 because, um, you know, one vote really can make a difference. And even if there isn't a politician out there right now that you're personally inspired by, there are issues on the ballot, on your local ballot, that you need to pay attention to. And there are people who, in probably in your local government and also at the federal level who you really might want to vote against, <laughs> even if it <laughs> means voting for someone you feel lukewarm toward, you know? <laughs> oh, that that is true. Um, you, you were saying how you thought that you know, being discouraged, being disappointed was uh, a reason why people stay away from the vote. One thing that I noticed about the Tea Party is that rather than get disappointed, they get angry. And that seems like a huge motivator to get them going. I know that's what got me so so fired up in, in 2004 and 2008. I was just pissed. That's very true, Donna. But I think also... I think anger motivates people to vote, but they have to have a they have to feel like they're going to accomplish something. You know, the Tea Party feels like they're going to accomplish apparently returning us to the 18th century, which seems to be their goal <laughs> by voting for these people who they who, you know, um who are their candidates like, you know, people like Christine O'Donnell and Sarah Palin and um I don't I don't know, considering how little the candidates that have been elected under the Tea Party banner have accomplished in the way of the Tea Party agenda, I'm actually a little surprised that that uh, the Tea Party hasn't been holding those folks more accountable. And they do seem to be running out of a little steam, I have to say. You know, there was a recent gathering of the St. Louis Tea Party, which is a kind of a powerhouse uh, here in Missouri, as far as Tea Party uh, organizations go, and they, you know, they were having trouble getting people to show up. And I've I've seen on the news that at a lot of recent Tea Party gatherings, they've had trouble getting people to come. And so I'm wondering if, you know, the Tea Party folks are starting to run out of steam. I think I think liberals used up a lot of their anger getting Obama elected because that was a huge accomplishment in 2008. I mean. You know, the fact that we elected an African-American man who was not the establishment candidate, whose middle name was Hussein, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, we uh, it, think back about when we were talking about this in 2007, and, you know, I was an Obama supporter from the get-go. I know a lot of women on the site were Edwards supporters or were uh, Clinton supporters at the time, but... I I knew I was back in a long shot, you know. <laughs> I thought, gosh, if this guy wins, it'll be a miracle, and and it'll be a great thing, a great you know, a great compliment to American society and how far we've come in terms of tolerance and and the ability to recognize talent in people, regardless of their name or their background. And and uh, you know, he did win, which at the time that he won, it seemed inevitable that he was going to win by that point because he'd built this huge machine. Of uh, of volunteers on the ground, but you know, when you think back on it, it seemed impossible. And I think what what brought Barack Obama into office was not so much I think Barack Obama's personal charisma or his ability as a leader. Although I do think 
that he was definitely qualified um, as a candidate and that he was and that he was a good candidate, even though I've disagreed with some of the things he's done since then. Um, but I think what carried Barack Obama into office really was a wave of angry people who wanted something positive. They wanted a positive direction to turn that anger to. You know, it was people who were angry about the recession. It was people who were angry about Bush's foreign policy and these and these, you know, unauthorized wars that were not that were preemptive and and based on lies. And I just think, you know, people were really, really, really fed up with that. And people were still really angry about Hurricane Katrina. But you know, we were angry, progressives and liberals. We were angry for eight long years (laughs) and I think it's hard to sustain anger for that long I think I think you're right Jayliss and and that is both I think a strength and a weakness as we go into 2012 because you know in 2008 Obama could run on being not Bush which was a powerful motivator for a lot of people (laughs) Um, but you know now he has to run on Obama and you know he can't like say not Obama, right? I mean, so there there are people who um, I think find a little too much continuity in terms of the hateful not Bush things that drove them to vote for Obama in 2008, but yet those things have seemed to have continued on, um, you know, under the Obama administration with either tacit or explicit, explicit kind of um, you know approval and uh, and sanction. Um, and then I think there are people who are, uh, you know, looking at the situation and saying, you know what, in two years or even four years, we're not going to turn around 40 years worth of, you know, Republican um, attempts to get hegemony, you know, gain hegemony. I mean, you know, it's, yes, we had the House and and the Senate, you know, we had Congress for a very long time, the Democrats did, but, um, you know, and a a lot of really great law was passed, you know, in that time, but I think we're still struggling to really get, you know, get our pieces in place so that we can truly go forward on the things that we really want to do, our agenda, and I think we can be better about articulating what that agenda is, and I think we can also be better about organizing for what that is. And so I'm just really hoping that for the people who are still, you know, have some of that not-Bush anger, um, you know, to to really just hang in there because I think that Obama is is the figurehead. He's the signer. <laughs> you know, he's the signer of legislation that we want, which is key. He's the appointer of, you know, Supreme Court justices, which is what we want, which is key. And, uh, you know, he's a vessel. He's, he's a... a it means to a greater end, and you know we shouldn't mistake him personally, his failings, his achievements as like the end point. He's just right. the means to a bigger end. Yeah. Well, on that note, I, and I know that we've got uh, at least another year, a year and a half of talking about the election. So um, let's move on to one of the things that will likely be an issue, and that is the battle over the budget. And uh, there are so many so many crises, potential crises going on and so many issues there. Um, Melissa, you yes. wrote a very good piece in today's on Mamacrats.com today about the Ryan proposal. Um, tell us about that for those who have not had a chance to check it out yet. Sure. Um, so 
every year about this time, um, the House Budget Committee starts drafting their proposal for the next year's spending plan. Um, so this is for FY 2012. Even though we haven't finished up financial year FY 2011, um, we're now on our seventh or eighth continuing resolution, extension of federal government spending. Um, so Mr. Ryan, who is a member from Wisconsin and now chair of the House Budget Committee, he has released a template for spending for 2012. Um, it's about 70 some odd pages long, um, so not a huge document and um, certainly not an unreadable one, not too much inside the Beltway Speak if you're interested. And I do link to his proposal in the Monocrats post if you're looking for a quick and easy way to see it. Um, but, but really, the Republicans are, are trying to target the deficit, the budget, um, what they see as out-of-control spending, and, and Mr. Ryan's opening salvo, as I, I called the post, um, really did not shy away at all from some really large change the way the country is run as we know it um, to mandatory programs. So for starters, um, Mr. Ryan um, talks about reforms to food aid. Most people know food aid as food stamps, but the real name of the program is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance, or SNAP. Um, and he wants to turn that into a block grant. For people who might not know what block grants are, a block grant is a fancy way of saying, instead of the federal government telling a state, here's the money, and you have to spend it on this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing too, but not this thing over here, and giving them more direction. A block grant is a bucket of money. Republicans like to argue that um, block grants allow states a lot of flexibility, and they allow them to be innovators, and to some extent, I'd go with that. That's true. Um, but on the other hand, it allows states with less good intentions or with budget holes in other places to take that money away from, say, nutrition assistance and use it to plug a hole in the highway fund or um, to cover another budget shortfall. Got to build a bridge? Oh, well, I guess we can't give as many people food this year. We're going to use it to plug up another area of the budget. That's the difference between a categorical program, a program where a state is directed to do something by the federal government, and a block grant where they say, here's the money. Now, block grants can be more or less restrictive. So in some cases, they say you have to spend it on food, but we don't care what you do with it. You could spend it on anything that comes under the umbrella of food. In other cases, they say, here's the money, go for it, do what you will with it. Um, I think probably people remember the welfare reform debate, and that was really making a welfare program that was a targeted grant, um, AFDCA to families with dependent children, TANF, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, and there were suddenly a lot more requirements for work. Mr. Ryan wants to make food assistance, which is not a cash program. You get a debit card that can be used at stores to buy food, um, into something closer to what welfare reform is now, and people would have to go to work or be enrolled in a job training program to get food assistance. On its face, that doesn't seem too terrible. Able-bodied people, we agree, should generally try to find a job. But what happens when we're in the middle of a recession? Mr. Ryan yeah. wants to wait until 2015, but what if the economy hasn't recovered by then? Yeah. Are, are we going to say to people you can't have food? Well, and right now, you know, the, the unemployment rate is close to 10%. So, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, it's it's in some places, it's still up in those at that level. So, yeah, here in California, it still is. And the thing is, too, is that, you know, um, economic cycles 
are called cycles for a reason. You know, you don't just end the recession and there'll be no more recessions, you know? Well, and you know what frustrates me about that, too, any sort of restrictions on uh, or reductions in food stamp funding is, as I believe we've discussed before on mamacrats.com, um, food stamps are one of the most economically stimulative things the government can spend money on because when you give people food stamps or money with which to buy food, they spend it immediately in their communities and they spend it at a grocery store and that supports the grocery store and all of the people that work at that grocery store. And then those people at the grocery store, you know, they go out and buy gas and they rent apartments and it's just, you know, that that causes the money to cycle all the way through our economic system and economist after economist after economist has said that the way to help an economy recover quickly in a recession, one of the major ways to do that is to give aid to the neediest people. So I think any plan that takes that takes food out of the mouths of people who are, you know, currently not working probably in many cases because they literally can't find a job is I think a really bad idea, not just from a moral perspective, but from an economic perspective. And, and well, you know, the other thing that I that I have to wonder about, if, if Mr. Ryan pretends not to know or, in fact, doesn't know, is that many people, um, and I, I couldn't find ready statistics, so I'll, I'll have to keep poking, but many people who have food stamps have a job. Yes. And eligibility yeah. for a family of three is about 18, a little over $18,000 a year, which is a couple thousand dollars more a year than a minimum wage worker working full-time would earn. So people on food stamps aren't unemployed. They just don't earn very much money. So I know he wants to get people into these jobs better to get them off food stamps, but how does he propose to do that exactly? Yeah, I I kind of uh, always go back to Watergate. That's my era. And, you know, I like to follow the money. Who actually benefits from the Ryan plan? We know that it takes away from poor people. Who benefits? Yeah. And then I, the other big changes that, that he would he would make in this budget is um, Medicaid and Medicare. So for those not particularly well-versed with, with the programs, um, Medicaid, um, if you think of aid, for, is for people who are lower income, and Medicare is for seniors and some people with certain kinds of disabilities. Um, to, to start Medicaid, um, I know a lot of people think that Medicaid as a health program is, is just something um, that, that would um, cover people with, with low incomes, but it actually really just covers children, some disabled people, um, pregnant women, uh, children in foster care. It's really a very restrictive program. Some states have opted to cover other populations, but not all of them. Um, and I, we need to talk about we need to talk more about that uh, the really awful plans in the <laughs> in this uh, budget proposal. But I just wanted to take a minute um, to mention our sponsor for this show, Bubble Genius. Yay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Bubble Genius. Um, I was thinking we'd do that at the end of the show, but we can do that now because oh. we uh, we love them. Um, I was, uh, it was my daughter's birthday on the weekend, and she had her eye on this really cute, they've got these soaps that are in such funny, funny shapes and so inventive. 
and uh, what she really wanted was the set of mustache soaps. Um, I'm not sure what the thing is with the mustaches, but uh, <laughs> we ordered that for her, and she loved it. Um, and they've got a wonderful little Easter goodie basket, too. Um, it's uh, I don't I don't know I don't know if you guys have been to BubbleGenius.com lately to see some of the um, Mother's Day and Easter things they've got there. I'm I, I'm thinking about ordering some to um, in in honor of Mr. Ryan um, donate to some women's shelters where apparently a lot more women are going to end up should he have his way. Um, but if if I can if I can just circle back to, to Medicaid. Um, I don't want people to think that Medicaid is an especially genius um, kind of, of program. It's, it's really a social safety net program um, just, just for the people who are, absolutely have no other options for care. Um, and, and Cynthia, did you have a question about block grants? Uh, yeah, I was. Um, I'm sorry, I sort of zoned out a moment earlier when you were very carefully explaining it, and so I just wanted to understand that block grants um, differ from other sort of dedicated um, federal money to the states dedicated to certain purposes. Is that right? And so the idea that a block grant then could uh, is sort of fungible money in that you know some could be taken out of that for other purposes, and you know some might remain in there and uh, for you know the original purpose. Is that is that the distinction that you were drawing? That that is the distinction I was drawing. Um, I think probably a good concrete example is um, when states transition to the the new welfare. Um, some states started using it to fund um, support for adoption activities, and I'm not arguing that adoption is not a worthy goal. But this is aid to families with dependent children, and then later TANF. This is money that's supposed to be used for people who are poor and have no other options um, or very limited other options to support themselves and their families. So, um, so it sounds like what Ryan is proposing then is to dilute sort of the possible impact of that block grant money that is supposed to go toward Medicaid or, you know, particular programs. But given that we know some states, you know, are not very good managers or perhaps less caring managers of money that is supposed to go toward, you know, the most needy in, in the population, then, you know, there could be a decision to just um, switch over some money to, you know, some other kind of program. Not that those other people wouldn't be needy also, but, I mean, we really are talking about disabled folks, you know, um, seniors, I think you mentioned, um, low-income um, pregnant women, um, low-income children, you know, foster children, people who really just have, like, no, literally no other safety net. Is that, yeah, and, is that the and, understanding? And part of part of my my quibble with Mr. Ryan, among others, is that he's he's arguing, oh, Medicaid really binds the hands of states, and states don't have any flexibility to do anything with Medicaid, and it's this huge, giant, bureaucratic program that really just, oh, poor states, you know, here's a hug from the Republicans to make you feel better about the bureaucratic imposition of Medicaid. Well, that's not true. Um, Medicaid written into the Social Security statute, there are several options for states to do demonstration projects, to waive certain services. There's different kinds of eligibility that they can limit. Um, some states enroll, a majority of states actually enroll some proportion of, of Medicaid beneficiaries in managed care programs to try to limit expenses. Um, 
different kinds of states have done different things with their Medicaid system to make them more efficient and interesting. Um, different states use B waivers or home and community-based services to get people out of hospital-based care, which is expensive and limiting, and into the community, which is better for them, better for the budget, better for everybody. So the idea that, that Medicaid is the way it is and the requirements are the same from California to Alabama and Massachusetts is just untrue. Um, and, and you know, I, I don't think too many people, despite Mr. Lyon's description of it as a hammock that lulls able-bodied citizens into lives of complacency and dependency, really are <sighs> thrilled to be a Medicaid recipient. I mean, these, these are people who are, are really sick. It's seniors in nursing homes who have exhausted their funds. These are not people who are seeking Medicaid with an open hand. Um, it's, it's that they don't have other options. This is truly the payer of last resort for the most poor, most vulnerable citizens in our nation. Well, and can we talk a little bit, too, about um, the hypocrisy of Ryan's plan when it comes to Medicare and what he intends to do? Um, I, I Okay, so he plans to, first of all, this is this is what his plans say according to the summaries that I've read. Um it won't affect people over 55, which seems like, you know, it, a very deliberate bone thrown to the baby boomers and the um, older generation who are much more likely to go out and vote, <laughs> especially if they think someone's about to take away their Medicaid that's, you know, around the corner or that they're already using, their Medicare, rather. Um, but than, say, someone who's 22 and not thinking about, you know, Medicare at all. But people um, in my generation, I'm 30, so I'm right on the borderline between the millennials and the Gen Xers, and, and we've always we've always sort of joked about the fact that Social Security and Medicare would be gone, you know, when we were old enough to, to use it. But um, it seems like, you know, Ryan's plan is trying to make that happen sooner then later, because uh, the plan is going to actually privatize Medicare entirely. From what I read, he wants to eliminate Medicare as a payer, as a payer program and just uh, require Medicare participants to purchase private health insurance if they want to be in Medicare, and the government would subsidize their premiums. And I read estimates from... Um, the I've read estimates that this would actually increase the average Medicare user's contribution to their uh, health care costs by about 68%. And that's just an estimate from the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office. And, I, you know, nobody really knows 20 years from now how much uh, health care for people in their 60s is going to cost, but it just seems like, you know... On the one hand, it's privatizing one of the best-run and most popular government programs. Well, okay, Melissa, you might argue with me about whether Medicare is well-run, but, I mean, people have a high level of satisfaction with it as an institution. If nothing mm -hmm. else, they want it to continue to exist. And, um, you know, he wants to put this in the hands of private insurance companies and force people who want to use Medicare, which he would incidentally make a voluntary program, he wants to force people who want to use Medicare to buy private insurance, which the Republicans have been criticizing Obama's health care plan for 
making people buy private health care insurance. So I don't understand, you know, how can they get away with this? How can they get away with saying, oh, this is socialism at its worst, when, when, which is kind of, you know, the opposite of what the health care plan actually is since, since um, the health care plan that was passed by Congress uh, actually, you know, lets you keep your private insurance and doesn't even have a public option, right? <laughs> but the Republicans criticize that, and then they use that model as a model for privatizing Medicare. Yeah, and, and the criticism about, about Medicare um, seems to be that, oh, well, Medicare is really expensive because it, it's a fee-for-service program, meaning your doctor submits a bill and they pay it. It's not a managed care program. Well, that's a changeable piece of Medicare. The other way that we could fix Medicare um, is to make it a means-tested program. I, I don't disagree with Mr. Ryan that it is, and it seems, not that it seems, it is a fundamental unfairness that somebody who is a very, very low-income senior um, doesn't pay anything for their benefits, but somebody who is a millionaire senior also doesn't pay anything for their benefits. So in general, means-testing Medicare, um, meaning that you know people who are impoverished or low-income would pay nothing, um, and people who had means would pay co-pays or co-insurance or a deductible or some portion thereof seems to me to be a road worth exploring. If you are lucky enough to reach your senior years and have health care from some other source or a pension or whatever it is that allows you to be economically sufficient and, and have some, some income, then why not require people to do that? It's the same thing with Social Security. Why not increase the tax, um, the payroll tax for Social Security to cover the shortfall? People who are higher income earners would pay some more taxes and we would all get benefits and everyone would be happy, I hope, or perhaps. But um, but means testing Medicare is, is, is not a bad idea. Um, he just doesn't say so in the budget. Rather than propose that solution, he just wants to go, um, you know, off into a voucher program. And if we look at Medicare Advantage plans, which are a voucher program, they have cost more money than anyone ever thought that they would. So I don't know what experience he's drawing on, but Medicare Advantage has been a very bad lesson for us in terms of vouchers. Okay. Well, guess what, ladies? We have a caller. Jay is on the line, and he wants to talk to you about Medicare. Hi, Jay. Hey, how you doing? Uh well, my first question is about the fact that in uh, the health care that Obama passed, uh, he they cut $500 billion out of Medicare without much specifics. And, and I, I didn't hear anybody of the Democrats complaining about that. And well, that was a cut to Medicare Advantage funds, which are those private, private voucher plans that I was just talking about. It was not a cut to, to Medicare um, parts that, that you, you know um, provide hospital or, or clinic-based services to people. That was to private Medicare Advantage plans. Okay. Well, look, I worked for a company that made uh, MRIs that competes uh -huh. with G GE. And um, it just seems to me the reason why I got into politics is because what I saw going on there was that the Medicare decides which products they're going to pay and how much they're going to pay each polit the politicians in each state instead of in a market deciding they decide I don't know how but they just decide which products get paid high and which products get paid low and anything a doctor wants to do in their office they make the reimbursement so low that it doesn't even cover the expense of the equipment 
50% of doctors don't accept Medicare at all. But meanwhile, other companies, um, like in the dialysis business, control 70% of all the Medicare uh, reimbursements that go to them. Well, that's, and they make I, I think, I think, I think that, that you're maybe a little bit confused about, about some fundamentals of Medicare, which is part of the reason why dialysis, and I don't know where the 70% figure comes from, but um, part of why kidney dialysis consumes a lot of Medicare dollars is kidney dialysis is specially carved out people with kidney failure as Medicare eligible. So people can be young and have kidney failure and get Medicare. Um, so that's, that's part of why it consumes more dollars. It's a bigger population of people. But, you know, Jay, you know, Paul. Yeah, we um, we should go into Medicare more in detail in a future show, and we hope that you will call back when we do that. Thank you. What it's okay to me with regard to Medicare, and I'm still sort of chewing over this 55 and under ineligible business. Is that um, is that it really seems to be an attempt to spark a generational war <laughs> in terms of who will turn out to vote and protect, you know, what they already have and receive. And I don't begrudge anyone, you know, over the age of 65 who does have Medicare because my par- that includes my parents who are retired. And, you know, I am eternally grateful that they have great um, health care through Medicare, you know, and I, but I think, you know, it, it could, it has the potential, it seems, that 55 cutoff point has the potential to really kind of divide generations, and we know that seniors will definitely, you know, get out there and protect what they already currently receive, but there's kind of a question as to whether the 55 and below kind of absorb the impact of what's being proposed and whether or not we understand that that is our future Medicare on the block potentially at stake. Um, and so I think it could be a very galvanizing thing for those of us who are under 55 and would, you know, ideally like to be able to partake of that someday uh, so that we are not eating cat food and we are not having to choose between medical care and, you know, cat food <laughs> to stay alive. Well, that ladies. Kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it, it could be very galvanizing, but is the message getting out there? And I think that's partly why we're giving some time and attention to it today. Yeah, well, you know, I think that was like the most calculated thing in the Ryan bill. Because when I first heard that he was going to gut Medicare, I'm going, ha, you know, he is shooting himself in the foot because the seniors are not going to go for that. But that is why he put that 55 cutoff thing there, because he knows who who votes. And the people who are under 55, you know, younger people tend not to think that, you know, they have to worry about it for a very long time. But I can tell you as someone who is actually turning 55, it happens sooner than you think. It goes by fast. And well, uh, and I have a point related to that too, Donna. You know, as someone who would be directly affected by this down the line, because as I said, I'm 30, so I'm definitely below his cutoff. Um, I feel like this, if seniors ignore this because it won't directly affect them, I think they're making a mistake in terms of looking out for their own best interests because mm-hmm. this may well be just the first step in a plan to dismantle the plan altogether. I mean, you know, we've seen before how um, sometimes when politicians or political groups 
have a problem with a particular with a particular uh government program, they will chip away at it by defunding it yeah. and putting more regulations on it and all this until it finally it ceases to work well and people get rid of it altogether and and you know, I think it would be a really tough sell to just abolish uh Medicare as it is now. But they could, you know, have this sort of creeping privatization continue. I mean, we already had the experience with Medicare Part D where, you know, people were really excited about this idea that Medicare was going to cover prescription drugs. And then it turned out that this was a big, mm-hmm. you know, spending. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. a big giveaway to the yeah. to the drug companies. And a lot of people still couldn't afford their medications, even though it did help some. And so I just feel like... uh you know, it. this is one of those things where I think you have to, no matter what age you are, you have to think about is whether or not this particular uh, plan to change Medicare is going to affect me directly. Do I agree with the principles behind it? Because if they don't pay yeah. attention to the principle behind it, then, then they might not see, you know, more cuts coming down the line. Yeah. You know, the thing that gets me, I mean, I, I remember the battle for Medicare. I mean, I was I was a little girl, but I remember the rhetoric, and I remember the election in 64, and I remember 1965, and it was a big deal. And ever since it was passed, there were factions on the far right that wanted to get rid of it. And they've been working for almost 50 years to try to do it now with uh, the influence that they have, the Koch brothers, the Birchers, you know, all those people there. I mean, they've got these these guys in their pockets. They're getting. I mean, I'm sorry. I just get so upset when I when I think about you know this long game that they have been playing, and they're seeing the end game now, and that makes me angrier than anything. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I should add, too, that there are plenty of us in our 30s and 40s um, who have already been paying taxes yeah. into the Medicare program for decades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got I got my first job when I was 15, you know, and I started yeah. paying, <laughs> yeah, started paying taxes. Right. So. You know, I, I want to remind people, when when Lyndon Johnson signed Medicare into law, um, he said something that, that I think is, is really pretty profound. Um, and Harry Truman, not known for being a super liberal, was there at the signing too. And, and Lyndon Johnson said, no longer will older Americans be denied the healing miracle of modern medicine. No longer will illness crush and destroy the savings that they have so carefully put away over a lifetime so that they might enjoy dignity in their later years. And that's really what this program is about. It's about aging with dignity. And to think that our country wants to take away the dignity of older adults in their final years when they have worked and contributed to a program, it's appalling. Yeah. It's appalling. And I think it's also appalling when you think that it's all the more important to be able to avail yourself of often extremely expensive medical care in those, you know, autumn and winter years of your life as, you know, your your kind of medical ailments, you know, it just is a function of aging, right? Your body is running down, et cetera. And so, you know, it, it, the kinds of things that you need care for um, are often much more expensive than, um, you know, when you're in the prime of your 
of your life uh, simply because you're younger and, you know, you can bounce back. There are fewer complications. There are fewer sort of um, things that, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily have been issues but are sort of age-related. And, and I think what Medicare does is, you know, it it's 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 very it's very much about preventative, but it's also like you know trying to keep those costs down for you know in a manageable way and using the power of the government and sort of you know aggregating all of those folks who would otherwise be uninsurable on the open market. I mean, let's not forget that, right? I mean, who is going to insure a 75 and 83 year old person for their health issues? No one, <laughs> right? So you know, Medicare is absolutely necessary in, in exactly the way that you were saying, Melissa, that it's it's about dignity and being able to you know age gracefully and and to be able to take care of, you know, the health issues that will inevitably crop up as you age as a function of aging. Well, on that note, um, we are we are going to shortly be out of time. Okay. I would like to thank I, Bubble Genius. I, I'm sorry. Oh, could I just quickly sort of recap a few of the things, a few points yes. that seem to jump out to me about our earlier discussion? So here are some reasons why we should be opposing Ryan's plan for Medicare, Medicaid, and, you know, anything else he wants to touch, basically. Mind you, in, in his district, I think the, just really quickly, the Wisconsin elections for the um, state Supreme Court judge in Wisconsin, his district seemed to go pretty definitively for the Democratic um, candidate for that state supreme judge. So I think there's something very interesting going on in his district that we would, we should all watch, and and he, if he's smart, should watch too because it may not he may not be in a you know rock ribbed red district as he might think he is. In any case, um, but it seems like it seems to me that in trying to um, tie SNAP and the reduction any reductions in SNAP and and any kind of um, you know, uh, um, conditions around SNAP to work, he's ignoring, as Melissa pointed out, that people already have jobs who are receiving SNAP, this kind of food stamp assistance. And it's just that they're making too little money to adequately feed themselves and their families. So I think that's something to be very wary of and to push back on. The second thing is that the block grant issue seems to me to dilute sort of the power and purpose of what that Medicaid funding is for. And if some states decide, you know, well, we can siphon off some to maybe meet, I don't know, pothole problems that we're having elsewhere in our budget. I mean, it's kind of an extreme example. But, you know, it seems to me that we should keep, you know, aid to the neediest, which is what Medicaid is for, you know, to, dedicated to those people instead of going with the block grant issue that he's proposing. And then I guess the final thing is pushing back on whatever he proposes on Medicare. And as we've been discussing, you know, the whole 55 and under thing is really just, as Donna said, sort of the first step down what's been a very long path in trying to basically dismantle Medicare. And insurance companies hate Medicare because, you know, it's it's anti-competitive. They don't have a piece of it. They don't have a piece of it, and they can't make money off it, and that's why they hate it. And they will they will tell lies, and they will spend a lot of money to oppose it. But Medicare is something that we should absolutely protect, absolutely. So those were kind of like three main points that I got. And so, Melissa, if you want to jump in or if anyone else, and then we can hear about our sponsor, Bubble Genius. Well, we have less than a minute left, so... Um, Bubble Genius, I promise to do a better job of blurbing you next week. We are so grateful that you have enabled us to be on the air like this. I'd like to thank Melissa Schober for taking her lunch break with us today. Are you going back to work, Melissa? 
I am. So we we appreciate that. We appreciate you staying up late last night to parse the bill for us. Everybody go to mamacrats.com and read what Melissa had to say because it really does thoroughly explain what it is that we have been talking about. Jayleth Judy, thank you. Cinematic, you'll be back here next week with special guest Todd Farley of Making the Grades. So we'll be talking about education again, right? Right. Right. Standardized testing. So, yeah, that should be great. So join us back next week at blogtalkradio.com slash mamacrats and visit our website at mamacrats.com. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills saying goodbye for the mamacrats.